Today, page 13 in your notebook, in the issue of homosexuality, we've looked at the issue of abortion. Last week, we looked at the issue of origins, creation and evolution. And today, homosexuality. I said page 13. It's page 14, right? Is it page 14? Okay, I'm sorry. Page 14. And to the top of page 14, in our day, the issue of homosexuality is at the forefront of national debate. Within even the last few weeks and over the last few years, court cases have been argued regarding the meaning and application of marriage in our society. I'd like to stop there. Those of you that have been with us for the first two weeks know that I don't go over every line that is the text of your lesson, but I highlight and try to explain and illustrate some of what's there. Okay? So I'll do that as we go through this material. But you know, in that sentence we say that there is this national debate, including court cases arguing the meaning and application of, of marriage. We have come a long way in just my lifetime with regard to this issue. Now, my lifetime will be 48 years next month. And in my 48 years, we've come a long way. Let me uh, just give you a bit of the evolution of where we have come. When I was uh, just a young adult, so just you know, 20, 25 years ago, uh, the issue and the debate was not even close to uh, marriage or any of that. The issue and the debate was simply a matter of legalizing the act, the private act, the supposedly private act of homosexuality. That, that's what the debate was. I remember having those debates when I was in college. And uh, I, liked, I liked and still do like the debate, and uh, particularly when it comes to issues of truth, morality, and that kind of thing. And some of the classes I had, we had debates about it. And that was always what was brought up. This is a, this is a private thing between two consenting persons, so why shouldn't I have the, the right to do that? That was the argument. And my response back then was, uh, if it's truly private, why are we talking about it? What do you mean, why are we talking about it? Because it's an issue, right? Well, who made it an issue? In other words, you know, the truth is, when you say, what I do behind closed doors is my business, as a matter of fact, I don't even have any earthly idea what you do behind closed doors. And if that's all you're interested in, keep it that way and we'll all be fine. But see, I have a sneaking suspicion that that's not all you have in mind, I would say. You don't have in mind just what we do behind closed doors. What we do behind closed doors, you want to bring out of the what? Right? That was our next phase. See, it's not just I have the right now to do whatever behind closed doors. It's now I'm going to come out of the closet. So we have come a long way just in my lifetime. It used to be the debate was simply about do I have the right to engage in this private act? Now, and what I do in the privacy of my own home is nobody's business. And so why are we discussing it now? The truth is, there were laws outlaw outlawing homosexuality. And in fact, as recently, if you can believe this, as recently as 1986, our Supreme Court upheld laws uh, outlawing homosexuality in, in states. And that was because, just to be frank, that uh, you had had a, a conservative president at that point for six years who had appointed two relatively conservative judges. In, uh, in Sandra O'Connor and in, um, in Antonin Scalia, who had just become a Supreme Court justice. And uh, so two additional conservatives had been added so that you had a majority, and the majority upheld the state's rights to outlaw homosexuality. 
Now, uh, the composition of the court has changed, and the opinion of the court has changed, and that was overturned just a couple years ago. So who gets, who gets appointed to the Supreme Court is a big deal. And who gets elected is a big deal because they're the ones who appoint folks to the Supreme Court. So just bear that in mind. And so it was the case that these were outlawed, but the truth in some states, but it was really like a resolution on the part of a state for the most part because these are laws that are like laws against suicide. They're really hard to enforce. I mean, actually, once somebody's committed suicide, it's pretty tough to carry out the punishment, right? But, you know, there are laws against suicide. You say, well, that's stupid to have laws against suicide. Now, we have a, actually have a lesson on suicide in this series. Personally, I don't think it's completely stupid myself. Hey, that makes me stupid. But it's simply the government going on record about things that they want to promote or things that they want to not to promote. They know that these things are going to happen, and they know in many cases, like suicide, they're unenforceable. But the question is, is this something that you want to promote or dissuade people for state interests in engaging in? And throughout our history, it has been the judgment of the vast majority of folks, including then those who represent them, that there would be laws that would govern that even if they were not enforceable. So we've come a long way from just the private act to now affirming, coming out of the closet. And so you had in the 70s something called the Equal Rights Amendment. Maybe you'll remember that. It was introduced in 1972, and then it uh, fell by the wayside in 1982. It was supposed to have six years to be ratified. President Carter, who wanted it to be ratified, extended it. But in 1982, uh, it passed its deadline and, and died. And so it was not added to our Constitution. Now, what does the Equal Rights Amendment have to do with homosexuality? Well, first, what is the Equal Rights Amendment? The Equal Rights Amendment was a proposed change, an amendment, a modification to our Constitution proposed by what I will call the radical feminist types. Okay? Now, when I say radical feminist types, I hope you'll understand what I mean when I explain it. But I'm not talking about people who simply want reasonable rights for women and protections for women. Uh, I'm talking about people who have a more, much more radical agenda, which includes breaking down all barriers as much as they can between male and female. And this is why the radical feminist movement, the National Organization for Women, for instance, abortion is one of their top issues at all times. Now, why would that, why would that be the case? Because if the agenda is to break down distinctions between male and female, the, the number one biological distinction between men and women is women's ability to have children and men don't. And from a now perspective, National Organization for Women perspective, that inhibits women from being able to do all of the things that men do. And so as we can break down these distinctions, including these biological distinctions, then we will be able to further our agenda of complete equality, even biological equality. So abortion is always a top issue. Now, how does that relate to homosexuality? Well, the Equal Rights Amendment was only 24 words. 24. Zach, was that you screaming as you came into the, uh, the door there? No. <laughs> the Equal Rights Amendment was only 24 words, and here were the key words of the 24. No state shall discriminate against any person, and here are the, the last four words, on account of sex. 
Those were the last four words, on account of sex. Well, the homosexual movement was very much in favor of having the Equal Rights Amendment passed because, as you think about discrimination on account of sex, if we say you can't work here because you're a homosexual, then we're making a distinction on account of what? Because the truth is, if you're a male homosexual, we would be willing to hire a woman with the same, and I'll use their terminology, sexual preference that you have. So we're making a distinction because you're a male and not a female. That was the way they, they saw it. And that was the way many believed, and frankly I believe, the courts would have interpreted it. And that's why many of us were opposed to it. And we're glad in 1982 when it didn't get the three-fourths of the states to ratify it that it needed. Michigan had ratified it in the, uh, in the 70s, but it did not get the uh, necessary three-fourths and thus did not become an amendment to our Constitution. And so we've gone from this is a private act to coming out of the closet. That coming out of the closet was aided or at least attempted to be aided by the Equal Rights Amendment. And we now are at a point where we're debating things like in the military, what? Don't ask, don't tell. So we're still in this limbo in between a private act and whether or not it's going to be affirmed. And the military has said, you know, be whatever you want, but keep it private. We won't ask, you don't tell. You have no agenda, we won't have an agenda to come after you. But, of course, as we've seen, that's not good enough. It was never about, apparently, simply keeping it as a private act. And now we have a president who has, who has said, made it clear just within the last couple of weeks, that one of his priorities is to dismantle the don't ask, don't tell policy. And over the next year, that's his intention. Top of page 14 again, then. Political candidates have been confronted with the issue of gay marriage versus homosexual unions. So in the 2000 presidential election, I remember the vice presidential debate between Dick Cheney and, uh, and Joe Lieberman, and they were asked about uh, homosexuality. And I remember both of them squirming, and they're saying, boy, Bernie, I think it was Bernie, Bernard King, I think, that asked him, boy, Bernie, that's a tough issue. Man, that's a tough one. But I just, I just don't think we're there yet. I don't think we're at the point where we can approve homosexual as a society, that we can approve homosexual marriage. Well, when I heard that, every time I hear a politician say something like that, you can chalk it up to it's just a matter of time. Because there was no basis given. Not that it's wrong. Not that it'll harm society or any of that. We're just not there yet. Which implies what? We'll get there eventually. And so politicians have been faced uh, with that. And you can be sure, let me just as a prophet here make a prediction for you. You can be sure that the homosexual lobby, and there is an entire lobby pushing that agenda, that the homosexual lobby, lobby will continue to have great effect on polit our politicians of whatever party, because, unfortunately, many of our politicians are interested in getting elected and the money that helps them do that. And the homosexual bloc has a lot of money. Did you know that? Jaguar, Jaguar had an advertising campaign targeted directly at homosexuals because they have the money to buy Jaguars. You say, why do they have so much money? Well, very often they're professional folks. 
you know, often in the arts, so on. I'm just often, I'm just saying. That's all I'm saying, okay? Often professional, and generally we don't have kids to spend our money on, right? And so we have money, disposable income to spend. And so there's money to be spent, there's money to be donated to political causes, the log cabin Republicans. That's a group within the Republican Party that donates money to Republican candidates who are in favor of their, their particular agenda. And in addition, I would predict that this is going to continue to move forward in a direction that uh, I will lament, and perhaps you will as well, because many people have been cowered into thinking that it cannot be opposed, even reasonably opposed, that you have no right to oppose this. But I'm going to make the case when we get to the issue of suicide, for instance, that laws are always somebody's version of morality, aren't they? Isn't every law somebody's version of what's, what's moral? I mean, if we, say, if we say that companies, if we have antitrust laws, and we say that companies cannot become too big because that limits people's choice, that's somebody's version of it's, it's wrong, it's bad for companies to become so big because they can monopolize a particular industry so that I'm limited in my, in my choice, right? That's somebody's version. Somebody else, especially the guy who owns the company, can say, what's wrong with that? And so that's what laws always are. But people have been cowered into thinking that we have no right to express what we think is right as codified in, in law. But all laws, every last one of them, are somebody's version of what they think is best and what is right. Take one more example, and then we'll get back to the notice. You take the issue of pornography and obscenity. The courts are always, and legislators are always, having to grapple with this. Can we tell people how they can express themselves? And to this point, at least, the answer has been yes. There are certain things, believe it or not, even now in 2010, <laughs> that, that you can't do. And that crossed the line. Now, the line keeps moving, but the line has been conforming to community standards. And the idea there is that the community has the right to determine what it thinks is, deems best for its, for its community. And so if, if there's ever going to be any slowing down of the progress of this agenda, people are going to have to become uncowered with regard to the right to express yourself in codifying what you think is best for, uh, for the community. So back to the top of page 14. Over the last few years, the homosexual community has become active and powerful in the media, politics, and, yep, even in religion. They strongly demand equal rights and sometimes special protections. Homosexuality is clearly an important moral issue. What is it? Homosexuality is sexual desire for a member of the same, thus the word homo, which means same, sex. Hetero, different, so heterosexual. Homosexuals seek sexual satisfaction with members of the same sex. Gay is a general term that can refer to homosexual men or women. Lesbian refers to female homosexuals. Well, I meant to say, just by the way, and this I just state this as a matter of fact. Uh, I said that the homosexual agenda and the feminine, radical feminist agenda have been wedded. Uh, it is a matter of fact that the leadership of 
the, the women's groups, the radical feminist women's groups, are, are largely populated by lesbians. And that's no accident. And again, I don't say that as a pejorative. I'm simply saying that as a matter of fact because their interests are, are wedded. Okay? All right, now what does the Bible have to say then about this? Here are some of the key texts. Going back to the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 18, do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. Leviticus, again, if a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They must be put to death, according to the Old Testament law. Their blood will be on their own heads. Now let me stop there for a moment. You say, wow. Didn't know when I came to church today that we were, you know, going to be advocating a lynching or, or something like that. The Old Testament first part of your Bible uh, has what we just read. That is part of the punishment for, for homosexuality was capital punishment. And why was that? Why did God take that so seriously? And how does that apply to us today? So I'll just take a few minutes to talk about that. Why did God take it so seriously? Well, do you remember when God made male and female, he created them? Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. God created them in his own what? Image. Male and female, he created them. And then God gives them instructions, and God says to them, be fruitful and multiply. Now, you all have heard me talk about why it is that God was so interested in this multiplication going on. I won't ask for a show of hands because I might be embarrassed at how few remember what I've said about that. But why did God command and desire that they multiply, be fruitful, the male and the female? Because they were made in his image and God's design in creating humanity was to see his reflection of himself populated throughout his world. So God wants to see his image all over the place. And God was not interested in anybody mucking up the works by saying we're not going to marry, and if we do marry, we're not going to be fruitful and multiply. Now, you may ask the question, what if you're unable to multiply? That's a different matter than refusing to multiply. And so this was a very important matter to God because it defies, it perverts his intention for men and women. So when we use that word perversion, we have to be careful because it's now taken on a connotation that is pejorative. You know, you're, you're a pervert. But perversion simply means you are, you are reversing, you are going against the original design of something. And homosexuality then indeed is a perversion of God's design for men and women to be fruitful and multiply who bear his, who bear his image. So that's one. Related to that, as you read through the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, most of you are aware that unlike in the New Testament, where God is working out his plan through an entity called the church worldwide, his plan is being carried out through the church, capital C, and through churches, small c, like this one and other Bible-believing churches. In the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, he was carrying out his plan through a nation. And who was that nation? The, the nation Israel. And so we call the Jews God's chosen people. The book of Galatians in your New Testament makes very clear that simply being ethnically Jewish does not, make you go, does not mean you're going to heaven. The choosing was God choosing 
this ethnicity, this race of people in this particular nation as his vehicle to carry out his plans. So how does that relate to his laws then, including laws about homosexuality? Well, in the Old Testament, they were under a theocracy. What's a theocracy? Well, we're in a democracy. Demos means people. Government by the people. Theos means God. It's government by God. They were in a theocracy, and, and God had spokesmen like Moses through whom he gave this law to say, this is the way I want the nation governed. So in the New Testament, in our day, we are not under theocracy, so we don't have the same ability or even the same requirement to have the same penalties that God had, but God, in his theocracy, took it very seriously because it was a threat to his original purpose and it was a threat to his preservation of the nation through whom he was carrying out his his, um, plan. That's why you find, if you were to go through the various offenses in the Old Testament that required capital punishment, you will find that all of them in one way or another were a threat to the preservation and survival of the nation. It wasn't because these sins were particularly worse than anything else. They had a worse effect than anything else in God's plan. Now you come to Judges chapter 19. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house, pounded on the door, shouted to the old man who owned the house, Bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, do not be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this. And the Bible calls it a disgraceful thing. But then you come to the New Testament, Romans chapter 1. God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their, and notice the word, perversion. 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexual offenders, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Jude. Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Sodom and Gomorrah. Homosexuality is sometimes called sodomy. The laws against homosexuality, which have been, within the last ten years, struck down by our Supreme Court, were called anti-sodomy laws. Why? Because of Sodom and Gomorrah and the sin, the chief sin, of Sodom and Gomorrah being homosexuality. So, the clear teaching bottom of page 14 of Scripture is that homosexuality is sin. A homosexual lifestyle cannot be harmonized with God's standard of righteousness. So, that raises then questions. There is no doubt that that is what Scripture teaches. Now the question is, how does one harmonize what Scripture teaches with questions that are often raised? Like, how can somebody be condemned, how can somebody be restrained even in something they might be born with? And so that raises the question, Are what are the causes of homosexual behavior? And that has changed. We'll look at it on page 15 in a bit, but that has changed again in my lifetime. The psychiatric community 
uh, used to define homosexuality as a as a disorder, but now it is now it's considered normal normal behavior. And so, as behavior changes, it's amazing how the psychiatric community changes its definitions. They just this past week came out with a new draft version that's been in the making for 10 years of the DSM-4 manual. The DSM-4 manual has a bunch of revisions. Many of those revisions are simply bringing it up to date with the way people behave. What the psychiatric community often does is place a label on what people do. And then it has medical-sounding uh, medical authority behind it. So what are the causes of homosexual behavior? The pro-homosexual community asserts that homosexuality is biological. Homosexuals are simply born that way. There's nothing anyone can do about it. Some even point to scientific evidence that suggests that homosexuals have different brain biology than do heterosexuals. Others suggest the primary cause of homosexuality is early psychological influences in their environment. That is, if one had a strong mother, no father, he might be more likely. If one had early homosexual experiences forced upon him, he's likely to become homosexual later in life. While it is true that both biology and environment can influence behavior, neither of these is the ultimate factor. The biblical view of the cause of homosexuality assumes two things. One, all sin flows from a depraved heart. Man's inner control center, the heart, is wicked, deceitful, and morally corrupt. No matter how that, that heart manifests itself, homosexuality is just one manifestation of that, as we'll see. But it all emanates, it all comes from, is derived from, has its source in the heart. That's one. Two. A sinful environment can indeed have great influence on one's actions. The Bible repeatedly urges us to stay away from evil influences. So the Bible teaches that homosexuality is the result of a corrupt heart working in combination with evil influences. But that's true of, that's true of every sin. A corrupt heart working in conjunction with evil influences. The ultimate cause is the sinfulness of man, but psychology and environment also play a role. People are not born homosexuals, they're born sinners. From man's sinful nature flows sinful appetites that he spends his entire life attempting to satisfy. Sometimes the combination of depravity and environment moves a man into lying, stealing, gossip, and or murder. Sometimes the combination moves him into a homosexual lifestyle. But even if a person was biologically prone toward homosexuality, that fact would not reduce his sin. Every person is bent toward sin but that is no excuse. Now, it's a mouthful, but do you understand what's being said? That, frankly, I'm not that interested in the whole origin of why someone does this debate. Because the truth of the matter is, all of us have different personalities, different propensities, different environmental factors that have influenced where we are and the things we struggle with. Every last one of us. In this room, every one of us struggles with different stuff. And so the question now is, in what stuff am I going to engage? In what things am I going to indulge? The fact that I have a propensity toward, a temptation to, does not mean that I should allow myself to engage in. So I have no difficulty with someone admitting, I struggle with this particular thing. Now let's struggle together. Let's see what the Bible has to say about a struggle with alcohol, for instance. You know, can, can, some, can, can a person have a propensity toward alcoholism that the next guy doesn't have? 
My own view is yes. And, and here's a good way not to have to worry about that. Don't drink. Then we, then we don't have to mess with it. But if you choose to play roulette with that, then you may find out. The fact is, two people can, can drink the same amount and has a different effect. Because they're different. So this guy has a struggle that guy doesn't have. So admit the struggle. And do not engage the thing with which you struggle. Do not indulge in the thing with which you struggle. And the same is true for homosexuality. Now, as I said, we've come a long way. Look at the, toward the bottom of page 15, and the question, is this normal behavior? As recently as, this is 20 years ago, an episode of the television show 30-something showed two gay men talking in bed. It cost ABC $41 million in advertising revenue. But just a few years later, 1996, two lesbian characters on Friends married with barely a protest from network affiliates. There are currently several popular shows with homosexual characters. Homosexuals are now common in almost all segments of modern society. Of course, Ellen or whoever else you want to name. As our culture seeks to normalize homosexuality, people, including Christians, face the danger of being desensitized to immorality. So I simply offer that warning. This is the way we've come in a short period of time. And now as the culture continues to accept and parade this, this lifestyle, one of the temptations that the church is going to have is to become desensitized to the reality of what this, what this is. The Bible warns us of the need to remain vigilant in the spiritual battle for moral purity. Ephesians 5. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking. These are out of place but rather thanksgiving. As homosexuality becomes more normal and acceptable in our culture, criticism of such behavior can become dangerous, even criminal. It is, by the way, in Canada now. So for you to be a pastor in Canada and to say and believe and preach the things that the Bible teaches and that I preach and teach would put me in jeopardy with the Canadian authorities. That's, that is a fact. I have pastor friends in Canada. So, you know, coming to a politician near you, no doubt, at some point. Now, we have a number of, you see Christian homosexuals, question mark there. I simply have some objections that folks raise and answers to those objections that you can read on your own. But there is this notion, I said at the beginning, that this has invaded not just politics and culture at large, but the church, religion as well. So you have churches ordaining homosexuals to the ministry and saying that this is acceptable and that the Bible does not condemn it. You can see what they say and what the biblical response to that is. If you'll turn to page 17. Top of page 17, I wrap that up by saying, Scripture clearly teaches that one cannot be a practicing homosexual and a Christian at the same time. Christians with a homosexual background will struggle with temptations just like heterosexual people do. They may even occasionally backslide and engage in homosexual sins. Those who repent of such sin and seek to change have evidence that their profession of faith is genuine. But those who embrace and condone a homosexual lifestyle are thereby rejecting the clear teaching of the Word of God. So how should Christians treat then homosexuals? 
We're commanded to love and give the gospel to everyone regardless of the types of sin they commit. Further, the Bible's teaching on the universality of sin ought to have a humbling effect on the believer such that he resists the sinful temptation to look down on others for their particular struggle. When we come in contact with a homosexual, we should show him kindness and respect, make every effort to build a God-honoring relationship, and give him the gospel. If we do not, we're disobeying and dishonoring the Lord. And then finally, can homosexuals change? Homosexuality is sin like any other, and it flows from man's depravity. This fact offers, now notice, it offers hope for the homosexual. Through faith in Jesus Christ, the power of God's Spirit, it is possible for the homosexual to abandon his sinful behavior. Now, notice what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that no struggle. I'm not saying no temptation. I'm not saying you'll never fall. Because that's not true with anything with which people struggle, is it? But it is possible to, cha- to repent, to change direction for the homosexual as it is for other sins. Homosexuality is not something into which one is born. It's a, simple pr- it's a sinful practice that's the result of sinful decisions. Now, again, you may be born with propensities in an environment that lent itself to, but the thing you're born with is a propensity towards sin in general that expresses itself in particular ways, in this case, homosexuality. These decisions can be changed. A different life direction can be pursued, and that's made clear in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. I read part of this earlier, but notice... The wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexual offenders, and so on. And then notice, and that is what some of you were. You were that. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so the word of God's teaching is this. Indeed, there were, were, are, People who were engaged in particular kinds of sins because of, yes, biological and environmental factors, like we all are, every last one of us. But that's what some of you were. And the gospel of Jesus changes people, and the Spirit of God changes people, and redirects their desires so that they now engage in the battle with what the Bible calls the flesh or the sin nature. So there'll be temptations, there'll still be the propensity, the difficulty. But one need not and biblically cannot condone and continue in that lifestyle. So what's the answer? Here's the answer in the final four minutes. It is embracing the transforming gospel of Christ and then engaging in what I say at the bottom of page 17. Engaging in the sanctification process. Believing that God's word is sufficient and understanding and applying biblical sanctification, and I lay out some of what that is on the following page, page 18. But it begins by embracing the transforming power of the good news, the gospel of Christ. And so where do you start with somebody who has a habitual sinful lifestyle of whatever type? The first thing you need to find out is what is their spiritual condition? Does this person know Jesus Christ? Have they come to God through Jesus Christ? Do they have the Holy Spirit of God? If they have the Holy Spirit of God, the Bible teaches the power of sin has been broken. And sanctification is now a continual, a progressive breaking away from the practice of sin. The power of sin has been broken. Sanctification is breaking us away now from the continual practice of sin. 
And that's true for you, that's true for me, that's true for the homosexual as well. And so in our final two minutes, I just want to rehearse what that transforming good news is, and then we'll pray and be dismissed. But I've tried to make the case in this material that every person in this room and every person born of a woman saved Jesus Christ, who was born miraculously without a sin nature. Every other person, myself included, you included, is born with a sin nature. You come into this world sinful. And you come into this world in particular circumstances in which that sinful nature manifests itself, displays itself. And so you've got issues. And I've got issues. Every one of us has issues. They're different issues. But all of those issues are issues over which Jesus, for which Jesus Christ paid the penalty on the cross for our sin. That sin that I commit, that you commit, requires a payment. And God's payment requirement is high, infinitely high. You will pay for it yourself forever, eternally, in hell, or you will receive the payment that Jesus made for you on the cross. God came to earth as man, died to pay the penalty for every sin you have ever committed, ever will commit. And the Bible says when you embrace Him and you receive the free gift that He offers, He gives you God the Holy Spirit. And from that moment on, God has a relationship with you that you did not have prior to that moment. That's what it means to be born again, reborn. And you are now given... The divine nature, you're given the Holy Spirit, and this is going to be now a real struggle for you. You will find yourself a year from now saying, stuff really bothers me that didn't bother me before. I was hoping things would be smoother, they're worse. The reason they bother you is because you now have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is bothered by the stuff you used to do. But that's good news because it's evidence that God has a dog in that fight. And you have the Holy Spirit of God working in you moment by moment, day by day, through the Word of God, through the means of sanctification that He provides in His church, in His Word, through His Spirit, in order to move you from the practice of sin. There's not one person here who's arrived at that. Not one. Certainly not me. But I am not today what I was five years ago. And as I continue to progress in sanctification... By the grace of God, five years from now, I won't be what I am today. And one day, I will not only be removed from the power of sin and the penalty of sin, but I'll be removed from the very presence of sin. Because I will be completely changed and everybody there will be as well. That's the good news of the gospel. How do you receive it? You ask for it. Lord, I'm a sinner. My sin manifests itself in a number of ways. Maybe homosexuality, maybe alcoholism, maybe anger. Maybe gossip. Doesn't matter. It manifests itself in these ways. I know I'm a sinner. I believe you paid for my sin. I ask you to forgive me. Please give me your Holy Spirit. I want to live for you. Go your way and not my way. That's what it means to come to Christ and He gives you His Holy Spirit. Let's bow together. Father, thank you for these moments to be able to look at what your Word says about this issue and the issue of sin in general with which we all struggle. Lord, we thank you as we think about the blackness, the darkness of the struggle. We thank you as we look at the, the, the white light of the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ. We thank you for who he is and what he has done for us. And Lord, we believe that he is our only hope 
for relationship with you, for standing before you uh, with our sins completely forgiven, past, present, and future, because the blood of Jesus has paid the infinite cost because it had infinite value. He came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. I thank you for the difference that that has made in my life. Lord, I, like the, the great apostle, this side of heaven, we don't arrive, but we do move forward. And I thank you for progress in, the, in sanctification, in becoming more like Jesus year by year, decade by decade. I look forward to the time when I'll be completely changed and in your presence. But until then, thank you for the Spirit of God that engages in the fight of sanctification in my heart and in the heart of every person who has come to Jesus. I pray, Lord, that we will continue to see the value of the struggle, the value of the fight, so that week by week, month by month, and year by year, we're conformed to the image of your dear Son. Lord, I pray for anyone here who has never come to Jesus, that they are committing their sin to you, their sin struggle to you, acknowledging that they, are, that they are sinful and that you are the only hope for payment for their sin and asking for you to give them your Holy Spirit so that they too are in your family and engaging in this struggle. Help us to be people who recognize who we are and how gracious you are, how gracious you have been to us. And may we in turn be gracious to those who struggle, even with things that are quite foreign to our own experience. Because the solution... Though the sin is varied, the solution is the same for all. Jesus Christ and the good news that is in him. Go with us this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.